Now, you do know sometimes um, our co-sponsor of these lectures, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, likes to send someone over here to introduce the speaker, and that is the case today. Uh, the Richmond Times-Dispatch provides wonderful support for this series, and we're always welcome to uh, say welcome to uh, one of their staff members. And today, we have uh, Cindy Creasy, who's the features editor at the RTD, and Cindy will introduce our speaker for today. Cindy? everyone. I'm so glad to be here to introduce my old friend Ray. Um, even though he's left the Times-Dispatch, we still claim him, so you'll hear a lot more about him a little later. Ocracoke, The Pearl of the Outer Banks, is the fourth book in Ray's award-winning North Carolina coastal series. It's a look at the history, the people, the continuing allure of the remote white sanded island that draws tens of thousands of visitors each year. Ocracoke tells the island story from the early days of Native Americans and European explorers to today's artists, musicians, fishermen, and bicycle riding tourists. Along the way, it shares the stories of Blackbeard the Pirate's bloody demise, German U-boat attacks off of Ocracoke's coast, and the role of the iconic 1823 lighthouse. Here, too, are portraits of fairies full of visitors, a legendary herd of once wild ponies, miles of nationally honored beaches, the charmingly unpaved Howard Street, and the poignantly serene British Cemetery, along with the inside stories of what draws families back year after year, generation after generation. Our speaker, Ray McAllister, is an award-winning writer, well-known to so many people in central Virginia. He was a reporter for the Times-Dispatch um, for 14 years before becoming our regular columnist from 1988 to 2007. I'm sure that many of you read many of his columns. A collection of his humorous columns were, appeared in 1995 under the title Reflections, Objects in Mirror Appear Backwards, But Maybe It's Me. In recent years, he's become an independent writer and editor of Boomer Life magazine, and his last few books have made him the established chronicler of coastal North Carolina. Two of his books tell the stories of Topsail Island and Wrightsville Beach, both won prizes given by the North Carolina Society of Historians, and both were nominated for Library of Virginia Literary Awards. Some of you may remember that Ray spoke here in 2009 about his third coastal North Carolina book, Hatteras Island, Keeper of the Outer Banks. Earlier this year, his latest volume in the series appeared, and you can have a chance to purchase your copy and have him sign it after this lecture. So please welcome Ray McAllister, who will speak to us today about his latest book, Ocracoke, The Pearl of the Outer Banks. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate that. Thank you, Paul, as well, and the Virginia Historical Society. I want to especially thank Nelson Lankford, who has now invited me twice. Um, the first time I understand, the second time I think you have to wonder. He, he should know better. I also want to thank the uh, Times-Dispatch for uh, uh, 
uh, for their sponsorship. And I'd like to thank the uh, Washington Post as well, which publicized the event and announced that I would be speaking on, quote, the Outer Banks of Virginia. <laughs> that, that was news to me <laughs> on so many levels. I will, uh, I will uh, talk a little bit about all four books, but primarily uh, Hatteras and most especially Ocracoke because uh, there, there is a relationship among all these islands, but uh, Hatteras and uh, Ocracoke do, do go together, and I'm seeing if this works, and it does. They, they, these are the four books. By the way, they, they will be for sale afterwards. Uh, my, these books are 1995. I'm not a real historian. I only play one in books, and that's the advantage of that. The, the books are less expensive. If you, if you are considering buying them, buy them here. Uh, the, the Virginia Historical Society gets the money, gets a large chunk of the money, and it's the most deserving organization, and I hope you'll keep that in mind. Uh, Ocracoke, I'm going to uh, hit on some of the historical highlights and then a little bit about the island today. But I also uh, I want to show you some photographs. A lot of this will be... Uh, Photographs. I'm going to start with what may be, while maybe not the most interesting, maybe the, the most important photograph in, in the book, and that's simply to show you the three most important items about Ocracoke, and that's location, location, location. As you can see right here on this map, the, the farthest point right is Cape Hatteras. That's uh, on Hatteras Island. Down at the, the bottom is uh, Cape Lookout, which is generally considered the southern portion of the Outer Banks. Some people consider Ocracoke the southern portion because that's the, uh, the, the last populated area. Uh, in the middle, between these two capes, you'll see the, the inlet that, that separates uh, Ocracoke. That's Ocracoke Inlet. About halfway be north between that and Cape Hatteras is Hatteras, Hatteras Inlet. Those are the defining uh, inlets for uh, Ocracoke. The, uh, I'll tell you, a lot of people, I'll, I'll give you a few trivia points right here. One of them, by the way, is the Washington Post is right in a sense. There is an Outer Banks of North Carolina, of Virginia. It, the Outer Banks begin about 10 miles inside the Virginia border. I'm pretty sure, though, that Ocracoke is not in Virginia. I, th <laughs> I think they got that part wrong, but, but there isn't, there isn't a in Outer Banks of North Carolina, uh, Virginia, rather. The, uh, the other thing is that Hatteras and Ocracoke, for much of their histories, were connected. Not many people know that now, but essentially it was one long peninsula. The, the inlet you see there in the middle was uh, the result of a hurricane in 1846. That separated Hatteras from Ocracoke. Until then, people used to walk back and forth routinely. The, uh, that, another piece of trivia, that, that hurricane in, 19, in 1846 also created the northern boundary of Hatteras Island, which is Oregon Inlet. So those both were defining, uh, defining uh, from, from the uh, 1846 storm. And by the way, Oregon Inlet, which may be the most oddly named inlet in the whole eastern coast, was named actually for the first boat to go through that inlet after the 1846 hurricane. So, 
See all this trivia that you're picking up now? <laughs> this, is a, this is an early map, a 1590 map. I've turned it sideways, thinking it would make it easier for you. It may well have made it more difficult. It's, but, it, but it orients you the, the way it was to today's maps. You can see down there, there's Cape Hatteras on the right. You go down a little bit more, you'll see the word W-O-K-O-K-O-N. That's the first spelling of Ocracoke, uh, taken from what they believe was uh, a Native American tribe that went by the name W-O-C-O-C-O-N. There have been more than 50 spellings of Ocracoke over the years. I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you one story later uh, about its uh, origin, which is not at all true, but which is often told. So it, it's fun anyway. Uh, what, while we're talking about uh, Oak Creek Oak, the first person I have to talk about is Blackbeard. I've written about Blackbeard in all four of these books. This is the first book in which it's actually justified. The, uh, <laughs> it has to do with marketing. People like pirates. Come on. The, uh, in all seriousness, uh, Blackbeard was uh, a British man probably Edward Teach. There's no certainty about that, but it seems most likely he was often referred to as Teach during, in contemporary times. So that's uh, most likely his name. He, uh, he was brilliant and terrifying. He was, a, uh, he, he was a master sailor. He knew all about currents and sailing the way few did. He was also a, a master marketer, I think you could say. He developed this persona that itself was terrifying. He grew, in, in an age when most people were clean shaven, he had long hair plus an extremely long beard. He would you know, put slow burning matches into his, his beard that would envelop his head in smoke. Uh, this, was, this was terrifying. His flag portrayed uh, terrifying images. He was a man who knew how to strike terror in the hearts of opponents, and also was amazingly successful on the waters in, in his business. He, his boat once, once defeated a uh, British warship in battle, and that enhanced a, a genuine British warship he defeated and sent scurrying away. Uh, he, was, he was treacherous. He uh, blockaded the, the port of Charleston for nine days, and. He, uh, he didn't, there's no evidence that he actually murdered anybody, but he killed numerous people in battle, would take through his ships uh, if he needed, needed them, sink them if he didn't need them, and then he would take the, the crew members into his, uh, into his own crew if he needed them, or he would leave them on a deserted island, which is pretty close to murder, but uh, <laughs> there is a technical distinction. The, this, this went on for some years until uh, 1718, the, uh, the state of North Carolina started cracking down because, and I'm saying state, it's actually colonies, started, the colonies started cracking down because this was destroying the livelihoods of, of people. Merchant ships were being taken down. There were laws enacted, and basically pirates were either driven out of the business, driven into prison, or killed. 
and Blackbeard was among those who supposedly gave up pirating for a while. What, what would happen, however, is he would go out on excursions and he would come back with deserted ships that apparently had foundered and he would, have their, he would take over their goods. After this happens a couple of times, <laughs> it seems to be more than coincidence. So, uh, but he also would, he would share the spoils with the governor of, of uh, North Carolina. So <laughs> there were not a lot of uh, prosecutions. He also was generous in other ways. He's reputed to have had 14 wives and uh, was very generous in sharing his wives with his pirate friends. So uh, a different approach, shall we say. Finally, uh, the, the citizens of North Carolina went to, and here's a Virginia connection, the governor of Virginia looking for help in capturing Blackbeard. Word came back that he and some of his friends had assembled on Ocracoke Island. By this time, Blackbeard had, he had downsized. He was running a much smaller crew. He was not running multiple ships. And he was there at, at this time, 1718. Governor of Virginia uh, gets uh, two Royal Navy sloops to go down there. Uh, one is commanded, the, the more important one is commanded by, by uh, Lieutenant uh, Robert Maynard. They go down there. Sure enough, their Blackbeard's there. He's caught somewhat unaware. They, uh, at morning's light, they attack. But Blackbeard is a pretty crafty guy. He knows the, the waters. He slips into water behind the sandbar. Both uh, the British Navy sloops run up on the sandbar and they're, they're run aground. Blackbeard begins firing his eight cannons, four on each of them. Uh, the first boat is destroyed and uh, Mr. Hyde was the gentleman running it. He's, he's killed, many are killed. Meanwhile, Maynard, who is no fool himself, starts tossing everything overboard that he possibly can, escapes, and comes charging at Blackbeard. Uh, the, the, the waters are filled with smoke. There's fire everywhere. And Blackbeard decides that he will board the ship. Uh, and he's got what he's developed. Again, this is a bright guy. He's developed grenadoes, which are sort of early hand grenades, bottles filled with shrapnel and fuses and smoke so they throws them on board and like they always do they create fires they create a lot of smoke and it's a demoralizing effect so he boards the ship or the sloop rather and finds it empty well Maynard has taken his men below when this all clears over they they rush up and thus begins the what has been called the bloodiest six minutes ever fought on Carolina waters and this was mano a mano. Hollywood couldn't have, have come up with anything better than this. The, the two of them are fighting. The deck is covered with blood. There are dead bodies everywhere. It's slippery. People are literally slipping in the blood. The uh, pistols are being fired. And pistols, by the way, back then were single shot. They were not reliable. So you're really much better off using a cutlass, which is what Blackbeard's men all were taught to use and were so adept at. So there's this bloody battle in, in, on, the, on board, and the two main protagonists end up uh, facing off against each other. And actually, each man fires. Blackbeard misses. Maynard fires and hits him. He, both men are being cut, and the, the battle continues. Finally, at one point, uh, Maynard's sword is broken off at the, the nub, 
and Blackbeard is moving in for the kill when one of Maynard's men cuts Blackbeard's neck, slashes his neck, and it's, it's a bloodbath, but eventually Blackbeard is killed. His head later is, is cut off and put on the front of the ship, taken up to Virginia, paraded around as a warning to other pirates. Uh, and they said they, uh, they threw the, the, the headless body into the water, and legend is that it swam around the boat three times before sinking. <laughs> I, I don't confirm or deny that part. The, uh, with, with the death of Blackbeard in 1718, the, the island was opened up, and a very slow development began, mostly at first a, a small town called Pilot Town, where... Uh, where lived the, the people who would pilot the boats through Ocracoke Inlet. And that, from that uh, small town eventually would grow Ocracoke. But the, the, the other great threat of the uh, Outer Banks was not, and that is storms. And I need to uh, remind you again of uh, Ocracoke's uh, location. It is very isolated, oh, and I need not go there. But let me do this. I've just switched this <laughs> entirely. Uh, let, me, let me talk first about the Civil War, because I do want to mention that, even though on Ocracoke it was very brief. On Hatteras, it was a significant battle for a short period of time. And Hatteras, in my Hatteras book, I discuss this. There's, a, there's almost a funny scene where the armies are rushing up and down the island, first one taking the other and then going back. It's called the Chickamacomico Races. But uh, for most of the war, the Outer Banks were under the control of the Union, and frankly, Outer Banksians were fine with that. They had no particular allegiance to the Confederacy whatsoever. The, uh, in fact, if there was an allegiance, it was to the North, because the North supplied the few jobs that were on the island for the lighthouse keepers and for the uh, life-saving station keepers that we'll talk about in a little bit. But there was a little bit of a war on uh, Ocracoke Island, and it was this. North Carolina uh, declares war in May of 1861, shortly after Fort Sumter. They quickly build a number of forts, including Fort Ocracoke, which was largely an, an earthen fort. The, uh, by the time it's to be occupied, the Union has advanced, They've, they engage in battles with two forts on Hatteras Island, proceed to Fort Ocracoke, which is the fort that's uh, portrayed right here, and find it empty. Nobody is there. So they, they burned the fort, and that was the extent of the Civil War on Ocracoke Island. Uh, there was not much else to it. Uh, there was uh, there are some funny stories in the in the book about uh, the Civil War, including one gentleman who was in Charleston as the war was beginning, and he was told to keep his ship there because uh, the Yankees would surely want it, and not only that, but the Confederates wanted it too. And he said, "The heck with that." He sneaked out at night, took the uh, took the boat home, and sunk it in the river so nobody would find it. So. There was not much of a, of a war on, uh, on uh, Ocracoke Island, but it, it obviously did have an effect on commerce and that, that type of thing, but much more of a war on Hatteras. Uh, let me talk now about the, the storms. I really do want to talk about storms are such an important part of what defines Ocracoke. 
The, the location, as you remember, is so far removed from the mainland. It is also very near the confluence at Cape Hatteras, to the Gulf Stream comes up from the south, the warm Gulf Stream, and the Labrador Current comes down from the north. So the seas are always churning there. One reason it's such good surfing waters right there is these two waters come together. Storms are a way of life. On Ocracoke, and there, there's much in, in the book about, uh, about storms, but I want to read you just one passage here because I think it's... Uh, it gives you an idea of what is all what happens all the time. This is in a place that's come to be called the Hurricane House because people had written on four occasions about hurricanes that were going on at the time. And in, for this hurricane right here, the Great Atlantic Hurricane of 1944, now a uh, a uh, a Navy lieutenant was living there, and he scrawled this on the, on the wall as the hurricane's going on. Great Atlantic Hurricane, September 14, 1944. Storm warning, September 13. Day calm and hot. In the evening, 14 fish boats came into lake for shelter. September 14, 5 a.m., wind rising northeast. At 7 a.m., wind reached 75 knots. Anemometer on water tower at naval base carried away. Later wind estimated at over 100 knots. Barometer 2840 at 7.30 a.m., wind shifted to northwest, 14-foot tide. Island completely underwater. Most fish boats blown far ashore, causing considerable damage to boats, docks, and houses. Mail boat tossed ashore, close to coffee shop. Six houses completely demolished. Pamlico Inn, Pamlico Inn damaged beyond repair. Extensive damage done to Gary Bragg's home. Three feet of water pounded through this cottage. Porch blown off and front windows, shutters, and door blown in. Practically all furniture upturned, and much of it washed into kitchen. Side kitchen window smashed. Front room floor torn up. 9.25 a.m., wind velocity dropping, completely calm by 12.30 p.m. Worst storm ever to strike island. No lives lost. This, is, uh, this was a, a horrendous storm, but not unusual on uh, Ocracoke. The, the islands are often flooded. More recently, here's Hurricane Irene. Uh, I show this because it's one of the few where I had comparison photographs. There is a, uh, a pre-Irene storm and a post-Irene storm. This wasn't one of the most devastating storms, but as you can see, it, Ocracoke, the, the elevation is virtually nothing, and the, the ocean just goes into the sound. It's one and the same. So this is what uh, Ocracokers have lived with uh, for all of the populated times. There have been a couple ways that they dealt with this. Let's start first with the, the ships at sea and, of course, the, the lighthouse. The... Uh, the light, this is actually the second lighthouse. I do want to say something right now I forgot to say earlier. Uh, the, the, these books are about half historical photographs and half contemporary photographs. I forgot to mention my wife, Vicki, last time, took the photographs. She takes the photographs. <laughs> she, she didn't complain, but somebody from our church rightly pointed out during the Q&A <laughs> that I had neglected to... Uh, to tell, to give credit where credit, and she does a wonderful job. Her photographs are terrific, and it's it's great to have her. Of course, when we do all the trips together, 
I also need to give credit to my editor, Steve Kirk. Uh, I met, uh, well, he's the editor, John F. Blair, terrific editor. He's been with me for all four books. And also Roy Wilhelm, who used to be with the Times-Dispatch. He, uh, he does all the maps. And we've really crafted some nice maps, I think, where we put historic events and locations with current locations. And I don't see many of these maps anywhere, but he's, he's been, he actually now works for National Geographic. And I mean, I'm lucky the guy still talks to me, but he's, he, he's really good and I, I appreciate his work. Anyway, this is the second lighthouse on, on Ocracoke. The first was uh, one of about two decades duration. It was actually in Ocracoke Inlet. It was struck by lightning but the inlet was shifting anyway, so a replacement was going to be needed. This was, this came in under budget. Um, I think one reason is it's only 75 feet tall and it's lopsided. <laughs> it is not symmetrical. It is built off kilter. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know. But it's cute. It's a cute little lighthouse. And people love it to death. It's uh, it almost seems as if it's in the back. You see Cape Hatteras, the lighthouse there. It's monstrous. It's majestic. And you see little Ocracoke, and it's, it's so cute. And so everybody gets their <laughs> picture taken with it. And it's been, I've, I've got a number of photographs that I'll just go through quickly through the years. But it has, this is the earliest one that I could find in 1890. And it was built in 1823, so it was already quite old there. That's the keeper's house next to it. Uh, a, later, uh, a later photograph, the, the light key, lighthouse keepers had to paint, uh, paint the, in the, white house, uh, the lighthouse. It was basically a whitewash, a, uh, a limestone mixture, they, and they gave you the recipe for how to, uh, how, to, how to put it on. And it had to be applied scalding hot. So I think that was probably a fun job. <laughs> this is... Uh, I'll talk about this in a minute. There was a Navy base on Ocracoke, and this, I, I, I like this picture. I just like this picture. Everybody gets his picture taken with a lighthouse on Ocracoke, <laughs> and uh, Navy men were no exception. This is one later in the, in the 40s. Uh, you can see the, the sand. It looks like snow, and I think some of it is snow. It's, it's hard to see. It's uh, a black and white photograph. And I went back to the archives, and they didn't have any more description. It looks to me as if it's snow and sand combined. But it doesn't snow often on Ocracoke, but it has. Here's an aerial view. It's, uh, it's the, the center, center of the island uh, in many ways. Interestingly, it really can't be seen by ships at sea. It's much more built for the inlet. Uh, unlike all the other lighthouses on the, uh, the Outer Banks. This is a picture of today. It's still everybody's uh, favorite stop on Ocracoke. The other way that people have dealt with the storms is with the, the development of the life-saving service. The life-saving service, and th this is their motto here, because it was treacherous work. These were... Uh, uh, these were built up and down the coast. The life-saving service started in 1848. It's a forerunner to the Coast Guard, of course. And it wasn't until the 1870s that it was really reliable. And they would put these about every seven miles, and they would go on patrol. And you'd have to, you'd have to uh, meet your other counterpart and switch coins with them to prove you had actually patrolled the beach. The, uh, 
over the years, they, they saved many lives. There were many historic stories about them. But it wasn't a, it wasn't a particularly easy life, but it, it was one of the few jobs of uh, it, actual employment beyond fishing that these islands offered. Here's the earliest photograph I found, the uh, first Ocracoke life-saving station. If you're familiar with Ocracoke, you go over the ferry from Hatteras, and right there, before you get anywhere near the village, is where this first life-saving station was called. And it was called the Ocracoke Life-Saving Station. 21 years later, they would build another one in Ocracoke Village, and this would become Hatteras Inlet. Uh, in 19, in 18, 1915, I'm sorry, uh, the Coast Guard was formed and they put a replacement station at Hatteras Inlet and this became the Coast Guard station there. So it was, uh, it was bigger, it was able to do more, but it was essentially the same type of work that had been done uh, by the life-saving stations. And there, there are just, there are great stories about the rescues through the years, these were courageous and or crazy people who would go out into hurricanes, I mean, to save ships. This is the, uh, I'm t I was telling you about the 1904 Ocracoke Life Saving Station. This is at the southern end of the island, in the village of Ocracoke. This was uh, one of the earliest photographs uh, I found. It was taken some years later. I just want to talk about a couple of the uh, the big ship sinkings off of Ocracoke. This is the, the George W. Wells was the largest ship ever to go down off the Outer Banks. The Outer Banks have been called famously by David Stick and by others, historian David Stick, the graveyard of the Atlantic. And it's with good reason. The storms took down many, many, many ships. And if you've ever been on the Outer Banks, you've surely seen those National Geographic maps that have been for sale with the myriad names of ships that have gone down. Um, but this, this was uh, one of the success stories because this took forever. They would fire a Lyle gun out, which is a, a, a line basically to the ship and people would come in on a car riding that line. Very difficult work, but they saved all 20 members of the crew. This was uh, an interesting one too. Another, uh, another ship sunk in a, a hurricane, uh, all rescued again. Ironically, and there's the rescued crew afterwards, the captain on the far right was killed in a car crash just nine days after having his life saved. So. Just a, a couple of typical wrecks on, uh, on the Outer Banks. This was one in 1944. It happened so frequently, nobody even knows the details of this one. And by the way, it's, it's interesting. If you think about Ocracoke, again, location, 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 so remote. How do you get things out there? If you're trying to, to live on this island in the 1800s, early 1900s, how do you get there? How do you, how do you bring anything? One way many of the homes were built and outfitted was through uh, shipwrecks. They would, they would take the lumber of the ship and they would take the goods and uh, often there'd be an auction of the goods. And that's how many, many, many of the Ocracoke homes have been built from shipwreck lumber. This was, uh, on the far right there is the 1904 station we've talked about in Ocracoke Village. This was the new Super Coast Guard station built in, dur during World War II. This was uh, 
this was the you know the state of the art at that time, and it's really it's an impressive facility there today, uh, still today. That's one of the things interesting about Ocracoke is that we were talking at lunch about this. Much of the 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 buildings of historical interest are still on Ocracoke. It's not true of every other place on the Outer Banks, unless you consider all the wing stores to be of historical <laughs> significance. But uh, they, there's very little that's, that's missing. Uh, and I'll talk about a few things that, that are no longer around. And of course, a lot of the, the old, old stores and homes are, are gone. But many of the, uh, the buildings are still there, and including a, a lighthouse that is now nearly two centuries old. This is the, uh, the Coast Guard building today. It's used as, uh, for the North Carolina Center for the Advancement of Teachers. I was going to say, that's a pretty nice place to go have a seminar, wouldn't you think? I mean, that's a, uh, just a terrific place to be. It is not only uh, storms that took down ships off of Ocracoke. The uh, German U-boats waged an almost unknown campaign during the first six months of World War II uh, for us, or, or first six months of 1942. It was... It was almost intentionally kept from the public for morale reasons, but that caused an awful lot of trouble because what would happen is people along the coast, unaware there were U-boats patrolling, went about their daily lives. Ships would come sailing by, lights would be on, at the, uh, on the island, and what those lights would do is they would light up the ships and they would be sitting ducks for the U-boats. And ship after ship, merchant ships primarily went down over, uh, over well, from January through, I think, June of 1942. It was a, uh, it was a bloodbath. Uh, bodies were floating up on the beach. Now, there, there are a lot of uh, stories of Ocracokers finding bodies floating up. So in time, they, people knew and... They were given orders to black out uh, all their houses. Anything facing toward the sea had to be blacked out at night, and th this is up and down the coast. This is true in, in Wrightsville Beach. I wrote about this. It's true in Hatteras, but there would be people who would go up and down to make sure your, your house was blacked out. There were, were to be no, no lights. It took the, the U.S. a while, but finally we did uh, get a campaign together. We had a lot of help from the British, who had been fighting U-boats for some time before we entered World War II. And uh, they actually supplied boats to help uh, go after U-boats. One of them was the uh, HMS Bedfordshire. This was uh, this is boat sailing off the Outer Banks uh, in 1942. Had 37 people on board. and. Uh, it was, unbeknownst to anybody, it was hit by a torpedo. Nobody knew there was a U-boat in the area. Nobody knew there was a torpedo on board. One of the people uh, who was on board was Thomas Cunningham. He's pictured here. And in fact, he had helped, uh, he had helped an American uh, officer, a Navy public relations officer, a Acock Brown, who who became well-known himself as a uh, chronicler of the, uh, the Outer Banks and photographer. In fact, some of the pictures in here are from him uh, because he had made available British flags to help in the burial of British seamen who were killed to, when Acock Brown went to ask about it. 
But I do want to just read something else again in here. This is when uh, two bodies were found floating on Ocracoke. And I'm, in the book, I go into some detail about this. And then two others were found, found as well. But when the first two uh, were found, Acock Brown, who was a special investigator for the Office of Naval Intelligence, uh, was called out. It was his job to identify the bodies because you didn't want any uh, bodies to go un unidentified and maybe the, the Germans would pick up their identification somehow and pose as them or what have you. So it was very important to do this. He was writing about this later in a, uh, a magazine called Mail Magazine, a magazine I'd never heard of, by the way, but he says uh, he's writing, uh, he, he's He's called to identify the two, and uh, he's told, I don't see how you'll ever identify this pair, said Captain Homer Gray, commanding the Coast Guard station on Ocracoke Island. I've been summoned to look at two bodies brought to the Ocracoke station. Homer and I stood in the boathouse, and he held up one corner of a dirty tarpaulin, revealing the bodies of two men. They were nude, in rather bad shape, and there was little apparent means of identification. But as I looked at the faces of the two men, the strength seemed to flow out of my body. I'm afraid it will be easy to identify these two men, I said. Homer looked at me. I know this man, I said, finally, when I could control my anger at an enemy who fired torpedoes. With my foot, I indicated the near of the two bodies. He's Sub-Lieutenant Tom Cunningham of HMS Bedfordshire, the same Cunningham I talked and drank with six weeks earlier in Moorhead City in borrowing the British flags. We'd better notify the 5th District, said Homer, letting the tarp fall back into place. But when I had the 5th Naval District on the line, they wouldn't believe me. You must be crazy, said the officer at the other end. We know where the Bedfordshire is. Maybe you do, I told him, but I advise you to double check. So this was, uh, this was what has led to what has become one of the most visited places other than the lighthouse on Ocracoke Island, and that is the British Cemetery. And some of you have heard of the British Cemetery. It's a very small plot. It's actually leased to the British government. And it's where these four British uh, seamen are, are buried. And every, uh, every year there's a, a ceremony there. But it's, it's a very poignant place. It sits in the trees and uh, it draws many people. Uh, but there are never, never enough that you can't get by and see it. But it's... It's, uh, as I say, it's one of the most visited and one of the most poignant places on Ocracoke. Let me talk briefly about the Navy, Navy base. It is one of the, the few uh, historically interesting locations on Ocracoke that really is not there anymore. There's very little evidence of the, the Navy base. This is an aerial shot. The, the Navy base was built in 1942. It wasn't finished until about the same time as uh, the German U-boat campaign was finally brought under control. So there wasn't a great deal of need for, uh, for the base at, at that time. Uh, still, I mean, you build a Navy, Navy base and it was a large facility and it has to be used. And they went, uh, they went about it. I do want to read, and I'm not going to spend all day reading. This is the last segment I'll read to you. But it, it's, I, I found it amusing just because I have that sort of sense of humor. But this was, uh, when you think about Okriko, one of its allures is how remote it is, how far from everything it is. But think how this would play to a young Navy man, you know, 
a place in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. So uh, there was actually a Navy report that was uh, drawn up to look uh, into the whole morale issue of the, the Navy sailors there. It says, it is realized that much of the melancholy moaning about duty off this base comes from a deep distaste for Ocracoke in the minds of the men of the ships that call here, which may have some effect on their opinion concerning the practicability of the port. This sentiment seems to be universal and is due to the isolated position of the base, the poverty of entertainment of any kind, no liquor, and a lack of supply of the ladies of negotiable affections sought by sailors. <laughs> Leave it to the Navy to tell it like it is, right? These are, uh, you can see in this picture, this is the Navy base uh, back in the, the 40s. I actually didn't come across a great many really good pictures, but I thought these were, these were interesting. As you can see on that little spit there, beyond it is Ocracoke Inlet, and in the foreground is the harbor. And on the left side of it, you can see the Coast Guard Station, and then you can see barracks, and you can see other Navy facilities. And these are some of the ships, uh, ships at harbor. There is a, an interesting little story. It's, it's really a side story, and I, I bring it up right now because it, it involves Douglas Fairbanks, Jr., the, the, the actor. He was, you know, you, some, uh, some celebrities are in, the, are in the military and are just sort of there, and others like Ted Williams, the, the pilot, are, have an instrumental role. Well, Douglas Fairbanks has such a role. He was initially assigned to Lord Mountbatten, and it was under his uh, assignment that he, he re encountered British commandos. And he thought the idea would work well. And he came back, proposed it, and it was implemented. And thus were born the, the U.S. Navy beach jumpers. Uh, Ocracoke was one of, I think, three locations where they were actually trained. And they are the, the forerunners of the Navy SEALs. And therefore, there's a... There is a, uh, a monument now on Ocracoke Island that's pictured there. But that's Ocracoke's little touch to, to fame is uh, Douglas Fairbanks, Jr., probably second only to Blackbeard among the celebra <laughs> celebrities of the island. I have to, uh, I have to move rather quickly, but I, I, f I think I'll be able to, to give you a feel for Ocracoke through the years with these photographs here. This is one of my favorite photographs right here. It's the mailboat arriving. And you can see the whole town showed up to get the mail. I mean, it was the social event of the day. It was the only connection with uh, the outside world. Until the mid-50s, there was no regular ferry service. There was no paved road on the island. You would have to drive in sand. Uh, to, if you could even get to Okrakuk, you'd have to drive in sand. There was no real communication. Uh, the the co Coast Guard had a telephone. Nobody else did. The phone was out half the time, at least in the earlier part of the 1900s. And the only real connection literally was the daily mailboat with the outside world. Here's a picture of the, the post office. The, they put the post office wherever they put the post office, you know, and finally it got its own building. Uh, here are a couple of interesting uh, photographs, too, I think. Uh, the upper one is 1936. You see how even then, long before many places where they were building homes on pilings, 
because the village flooded all the time, all the time. Another aspect, a lot of homes were built with what they called scuttles, and these were essentially trap doors in the floors. If they didn't have a trap door, they would just remove a plank from the flooring. And the reason was, during a, during a flood, which came all the time, you would open this little scuttle, let the water into your home, it, you know, it would damage it, it would, it would soak it, but at least your house stayed there. Otherwise, it was gonna be floated off the, the pilings and end up who knows where. The, uh, in the 1950s, finally, the state took over the ferry and there was regular ferry service. It was sort of catch as catch can be, before that. Here's a, an early picture in 1958. Um, in, the, in the book, I talk a great deal about uh, developers in the uh, mid to late 1900s. There are three who sort of stand out. Uh, they're all represented here by, by their major projects. Uh, th three of them, uh, Stanley Way had, uh, had built a number of places. Many of you know the Island Inn down there if you've been to Ocracoke below. That actually uh, stemmed from a 1902 uh, coffee shop, which was also an Oddfellows Lodge. Uh, it had been a schoolhouse and was an Oddfellows Lodge. He converted it to a coffee shop, built on a dance hall, and things grew from there. Sam Jones was uh, a really genuinely interesting character who built uh, a number of big projects, including uh, Berkeley Manor, which is shown here. And of course, he is, he's famous locally for being buried with his horse, Ike Dee. So he's the only person I've heard of who's done that. <laughs> and then the, the big controversial building uh, on Ocracoke was always the Anchorage Inn in 1982. The, uh, I found a, a, a great book and drew uh, some interview segments with Scott Cottrell, who was persona non grata. This was a four-story brick building. And, it was, and it, everybody said, well, that's not Ocracoke. Ocracoke has small seaside cottages. And, and his contention that what uh, people called the Ocracoke style was really basically falling down junk. So <laughs> he wanted something that visitors, he wanted something and visitors there wanted something that would stand up, that uh, would stand up to the ele elements and would also be equal to what they had seen at other stops up, up and down the highway. Uh, these three men are worth a, a lot more than I'm talking about right here, but it, it gives you a feel for what's going on. Can't talk about Ocracoke without talking about the ponies. They are descended probably from, possibly they go back as far as Sir Walter Raleigh. There's some disagreement as to whether they were Spanish ponies or where they came over, but they, they ran wild on Ocracoke for years. This ended in the 1950s when uh, the, the highway came in and also the Cape Hatteras National Seashore, which is essentially a large national park that uh, envelops mu much of Hatteras Island and Ocracoke Island and keeps development from coming in there. This is, uh, when this highway went down the middle of uh, Ocracoke in uh, the 1950s, they could no longer have horses running back and forth. Ocracoke's not that wide at much of it. If you've been there, you know. I mean, you could, you could hit a, a golf ball from the sound to the ocean if you wanted to do that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying you have to. One thing that was interesting is the, uh, 
a local man took took over the ponies for a Boy Scout troop, and Ocracoke became famous for having the nation's only mounted Boy Scout troop. They were featured in Life magazine, and they were the subject of a couple of books, uh, boys' books, and they became quite famous. They were celebrities. The ponies are still there, still there today. As you come off the ferry and drive toward the village, they're on your right side, and there is a a large area. They're not roaming free, but they're not corralled, so they do have a little bit of room. Uh, they're still a tourist attraction. It's not quite the same, but uh, it is. Uh, it, it, it's a, it, it evokes the old pony days. By the way, in that top picture, that's one of the annual July 4th pennings that they used to have. The, they'd gather all the ponies and they would uh, uh, brand them with the owners and then they'd auction some of them off and the others would be allowed to, to go free. Can't talk about Ocracoke without talking about Howard Street. The, 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 the island's best sign is in the lower right there. I hope you can see it. It's, Howard Street is an unpaved road just the, the way it was years ago. It's typical Ocracoke. People love it. It is Ocracoke. That sign says, drive real, real slow. <laughs> and it is good advice. We've driven down. It's only one way for driving. We've driven it, and you do have to drive real, real slow. It's, uh, it's actually better walked, and it's, it's not terribly long. But it is, when you think of Ocracoke, there are a couple things you think of. The lighthouse, the British Cemetery, the ponies, and Howard Street. It's very definitely a part of it. I need to talk about the beaches. Uh, Cape Hatteras National Seashore, as I said, keeps most of the island undeveloped. It is... Uh, uh, Developers hate it, uh, tourists love it, uh, except for the people who think it restricts their access to the beach too much. Uh, there's always contention, but it is, it is what defines both Hatteras and Ocracoke now. And by the way, uh, in 2007, Dr. Beach, uh, Dr. Stephen Leatherman, who is a legitimate marine biologist who is often called upon to testify before Congress. He, he, he has a sort of a fun thing that he does every year. He picks the 10 best beaches. And once you're number one, you're off the list. Well, in the, I think the 16th year he did it, Ocracoke was named the top beach in America. So you think, well, that's not so much. It's, so it's really the 16th best beach in, the, in America. But the first 15 were all in either Hawaii or Florida. So... <laughs> Ocracoke is the best beach in America outside of Hawaii or Florida. <laughs> Just a couple of scenes trying to give something of a feel for Ocracoke. There's not a, a, a lot that I can say. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever been there, you know what it's like. It's somewhat crowded in summer. It's, uh, it's, there's a thriving artist community there. Unlike Hatteras, which faces toward the ocean and has... Uh, developed a very active physical co culture of surfing and fishing and uh, kiteboarding and all of, all of that. Ocracoke is situated toward the sound away from storms and has developed more of an arts culture and uh, as they say in the book, I mean you can't throw a, a stone on Ocracoke without hitting an historian somewhere. So again, not that you would want to. The, uh, 
the harbor, just a beautiful harbor. There are a couple places, a couple of restaurants, outdoor restaurants where people sit. And it's just a, uh, a wonderful place. I've been told to be finished two minutes earlier than I am. So I think I can open this up to questions right now. Thank you so much. I'm told there will be a couple of people with microphones, and there's somebody there. Yes. What is the population of the island, and where do they get fresh water? The uh, population, the year-round population, is just under 800. There are only 745 acres in the village. In other words, the rest of it is, is National Seashore Park and can't be developed. Uh, where do they get fresh water? Does anybody know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, when I go there, there are stores that, and restaurants that have it. Uh, I've never thought to ask that question. But just under 800 is the answer to the first. And tens of thousands in the summer. Yes? They, uh, they have wells on the island. And a few years ago, they decided, they found out that most of the wells were pretty well contaminated. <laughs> but they keep on using them. <laughs> Now, you're from, you're from the Chamber of Commerce, is that right? <laughs> I hope you heard that, by the way. He, this gentleman said that they had wells on the island a few years ago. They found they were contaminated, many of them. They still use them. I have a comment and a question. Mm -hmm. My husband first went to Ocracoke in 1948, and the mail boat brought the mail, but it also brought any tourists to Ocracoke right. that wanted to come. And the only way they got down to the village was riding the mail boat on an airplane or airport, some kind of airplane matting that, that they laid um, on the beach. And the other question is, is the Island Inn still operating? Yes. I, was, I stayed at the Island Inn in January, I think. January, February, something. So, yes, it is. Now I've driven by it and it seemed to be operating. She asked if the Island Inn was still operating. Uh, okay. Well, the microphone carriers have to hustle, don't they? I was curious about the name Beach Jumpers and how did that come about? What was the, what did it represent as, as far as the activity that the well beach parachuting did? Par parachuting into spots on the beach. I mean, that's, you know, they were Navy SEAL forerunners, and they'd be flown in, parachuted down, and do their, their work. Yes? I, I think people would be glad to know where the children go to school. I believe they have a great school on the island, but they go inland, uh, take the ferry in order right. to go to high school. That's a very good point. He talked about schools. There is an Ocracoke school, uh, which, by the way, has a pony on the, on the roof because everything on the island has a pony. I've got, we've got pictures. There are ponies throughout the island, but they do have to go off-island to, to the school. Hatteras, uh, to the north, does have one school for, I think, up through grade 12. Yes? In behalf of the Chamber of Commerce, there is a well, but there is osmosis-type system that cleans the water. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> it is delivered to your house. Okay. So, uh, and they had, uh, they caught rainwater in the early days. They did indeed, cisterns. In cisterns, yes. 
So um, I think they have a cistern on display at the historical, at the uh, Oak museum. Oak Preservation. Yeah. Uh, she was saying that uh, they do have osmosis in a well, so they do have good water. So because there were not that many people dying who went there to drink <laughs> water. I so I was wondering myself. The, uh, and she says, historically, they did. They used to collect water in cisterns, which is, and there's one at the museum uh, run by the Oak Coke Preservation Society. It was uh, the, the original home of a uh, keeper of the life-saving station, David Williams' house. If you go, if you go to Oak Coke, make sure you stop in there. Yes? Uh, what is the rental community like on Oak Coke? What, I'm not sure I understand the, what is the rental community like? There's a lot of rental cottages uh, yes, as well as yes, residents. Yes, uh, both. There are, you know, there's a limited number. It, Oak Creek Coke is increasingly popular, although often the, uh, often you can't get there because of the ferries from time to time. They had an awful time after Hurricane Sandy this past year. But no, there are there are rental cottages, and you can look them up. You can deal with rental agencies, and you need to book them ahead if you're going to be in summer, well ahead, because they do fill up off season. You know, not so much. Yes, others. Uh, there's a Sam Jones story that he wanted to get the Berkeley house built, mm -hmm. and so he told the fishermen that they could have all the beer that they could drink if they'd help unload the, the um, ship. And so the beer was under the timber. So the, <laughs> so the fishermen unloaded, and you can see in that house the, the fingerprints on the wood. Did you hear that's a great story? That story is not in the book, darn it. So, <laughs> but in the second edition. <laughs> Uh, this is more of a comment. Uh, a few years ago, Jeopardy had a high school teacher from Ocracoke on the right. program. So they do have a high school there. They've had it since the late 50s. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you really want a, uh, a good education in high school, you go live with relatives in Norfolk or somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you really but, are with the chamber, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much.